Bible, would you open up to Revelation chapter 20, please? If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one of those that's in the pew in front of you and turn to page 976. Page 976 in our pew Bible, Revelation chapter 20 is our text this morning. Revelation chapter 20 is one of the most well-known chapters of the book of Revelation. If you are a student of Bible doctrine, you probably know chapter 20 as the chapter about the millennium. Uh, not about the millennials, but about the millennium. And that is because the, the time frame, 1,000 years, appears about six times in this chapter. And if you ask me, it's actually kind of unfortunate because because of that, this chapter gets all the attention is about this millennial kingdom of Christ. And we miss the real point of the chapter, of chapter 20, which is God's total victory over Satan and death in Christ. You see, Revelation 20 is the penultimate uh, scene of judgment before we conclude with the ultimate scene of salvation in chapters 21 and 22. In other words, as I've taught you as we've gone through Revelation, this is a book of recurring cycles all through the book. If you actually think about the structure, it, chapter 1 starts with this a magnificent vision of Jesus Christ, and then chapter 19 ends with yet another magnificent vision of Jesus Christ. And in between those chapters, we see a series of cycles of sevens. Remember chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches that represented all the churches of all time in all nations and all places. And then we had the seven seals. And then we had the seven trumpets. And then we had the seven bowls of God's wrath. And even in chapters 12 and four, through 14, although I didn't point it out to you then, we also saw another cycle of sevens. You remember I said as we got into chapters 12 and 14, we were being introduced to all the, the characters that are taking place in this great spiritual drama, this great spiritual war. The dragon, the woman, the beast, the false prophet, the 144,000 representing all God's redeemed, the angelic hosts, and the Son of Man. Another set of sevens. And each of these cycles of seven climaxed in the second coming. Now that was hard for you to see because we were so much into the trees and what we're now doing is kind of looking at the forest. But every cycle of seven, with the exception of the seven churches, ended with a vision, a brief vision, however it might have been, of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I want to show that to you. And what more importantly, I want to read that to you. Um, so we're going to do a lot of jumping around. Keep your finger in chapter 20. But you recall in chapter 6 of Revelation kind of going back there now, it was the seven seals. At the very end of the seven seals, this is what we read. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? That was the end of the, the seven seals. And then we see the something very similar at the end of the seven trumpets in chapter 11, starting in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, 
and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then at the conclusion of that section where we were introduced to all the characters that make up this drama in chapter 14, turn over there, chapter 14, look at verses 14 to 16. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud like one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap. For the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then, again, at the end of the seven bowls of wrath, we see another vision of the second coming of Christ. Look at chapter 16, right at verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out from the temple of the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there never had been since man was on the earth. I'm going to skip down to verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. In other words, friends, in each cycle... There was a mini-drama of judgment and salvation. You could say that in each cycle, the entire message of the book was compressed into that one cycle. And with each cycle, the, judge, the theme of judgment and salvation got greater and grander and more significant. You remember when it was the seven seals, it was just a quarter of the earth that was decimated. But then when we had the seven trumpets, it was a third of the earth that was decimated. And then the seven bowls, all the earth was decimated. Until we finally reach here, the crescendo of the entire book. So basically, in a visual way, Revelation is not kind of just kind of going in this linear fashion, up and down with some peaks and valleys, and then it ends. That's not how it's structured. Revelation kind of goes like this, and like this, and like this, and then like this, and then like this, and it ends. Recursing, going back in upon itself, friends. An important theological question you have to ask in reading Revelation is what makes both the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous possible at the end of all time, at the accounting of history? Well, we know the answer to that. It is the work of Jesus Christ. Which is why, as we come to the crescendo, the climax of the book of Revelation, here in chapter 20, and in 21 and 22, 20, chapter 20 goes back and telescopes the entire timeline of Jesus' first coming, the entirety of the church age, and finally things culminating at God's great white throne judgments. You see, friends, the reader of Revelation 20 should conclude the chapter... Not with questions about prophetic details, about some millennial reign, but with one important question. Is my name going to be in the book of life? 
And if not, how do I get it in there? Far from being a chapter about some millennial reign, the thrust of Revelation 20 is the thrust of the gospel message itself. How will you answer on that great day of judgment? What will your hope be? Will you cling to your deeds of righteousness, whether you're of a religious or irreligious mindset, you're a good moral person, you fought for climate, you stood up for justice, you cared for the poor, what will it be? What will you depend on? Or will you cast all your hope in the one who writes your name in the book of life? The way we're going to move forward today is I'm going to talk a little bit about this thousand-year reign because it's very important. How you interpret that will determine how you interpret the entire chapter. Then I'm going to unpack the chapter in the way that John presents it to us. And like he did last week, he does so with three very helpful literary markers. Look at verse 1. Then I saw. Then again in verse 4. Then I saw. And then finally in verse 11. Then I saw. So what was it that John sees in this Climax of judgment, here it is. Revelation 20, John sees the cross work of Christ in verses 1 through 3. The faithful witness of the church in verses 4 through 10. And the great white throne of God's judgment in verses 11 through 15. Notice how this encompasses all. The work of Christ looking to the past. The, the faithful witness of the church is the present age we are part of. And then there's this future coming of God's great white throne judgment. Past, present, and future all in this chapter. My aim is not to deal with every interpretive issue that we can have in Revelation 20. Maybe Bill kind of got you excited for that, and I'll deal with some of it, but not all of it. I will just deal with the issues that are pertinent to make the point of this chapter crystal clear. And I realize that some of you will disagree, and that's okay. To our visiting friends, both Christians and not, I want to ask you for a little bit of grace this morning because of the nature of what we're dealing with. Revelation 20 is really kind of pulling together all the disparate streams and strands of vision and scripture verses we looked at before and kind of bringing it to a conclusion. So this morning is going to kind of feel like a little bit of a lecture. And so I ask you to give, you a little bit of, uh, give us a little bit of grace here. This is where our, our advice to visit a church three times comes in handy. That Not every sermon is going to be this way. And, and to let you know, I'm probably going to go a little bit long, just because there's so much in here, and I want you to get it, and I think you want that too. So don't worry about your kids. I already told them that we're probably going to go long, so that's how it's going to go. Uh, to the rest of you, I hope you had your coffee, and you're ready to just dive in, because I'm ready. You ready? Okay, let's do something. I'll stand up, breathe. No, literally, stand up, because I'm going to read the Word of God. So... <laughs> It only takes a couple minutes to read this chapter, but I want you to hear it, because then we're going to unpack it together. Revelation chapter 20. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent. I think that's a reference to Genesis 3. I love how the Bible's always hinting back to the past. What do we see in Genesis 3? It was a serpent, right? So he's hinting back from the beginning. And the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan? No matter what you call him, he's doomed and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, verse 4. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority of the judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's a lot here. Let's get into it. First, let me explain to you what's often been called the millennial kingdom. And I have to do this pretty quick because this is not the whole point, but you need to get a sense of it. The first slide up there, I know it says C up there. That's because Kendall and I put these together months ago and I kind of changed the order. So ignore that. This has been a classic view of the church. It's been around since as early as the second century in the 100s. Uh, Justin Martyr, Papias, the church father, held this view similarly. Basically, he believes that there's the church age, and then there's a time of, of tribulation. And then at, during that time, after the tribulation, this would be Revelation 6 through 18, roughly. After the time of tribulation, there will be a resurrection of the believers and a rapture of the believers. We'll meet Christ in the air and immediately come down and set up the millennium. So premillennialism premillennialism means before the millennium. So this view believes that Christ will come down, the saints will meet him in the air, and he will establish a millennial reign of a thousand years. Then you have the resurrection of believers and unbelievers and final judgment into the eternal state. That's what many people have believed throughout church history. In the last 150 years, thankfully, thanks to the Schofield Reference Bible in the late 19th century, this view was then changed to called kind of premillennialism, pre-tribulationalism. And basically, they believe that this is the church age, and there will be a kind of thing called the rapture, that Jesus will come back before the events of uh, Revelation 6, and there will be all this, what's called the Great Tribulation, and that's basically chapter 6 and a majority of the book of Revelation. And then when it all is done, Christ will come back, and they believe that took place in Revelation 19, what we looked at last week. He will set up his thousand-year kingdom, reign on earth, and then there will be the, the great revolt and all that, and the great white throne judgment, the resur second resurrection, and then into the eternal state. Very similar to the first one. Christ comes back before the millennium, sets up his kingdom on earth, and reigns physically on earth, premillennialism. Another view that has been very predominant in the church is what's called postmillennialism, and that just simply means Christ comes back after the millennium. And this one's a little bit simpler. 
There's the church age, and the spreading of the gospel will impact the world so much so that the world will almost be kind of Christianized. And this was really a, a popular belief right up until we hit the 20th century, and then things like well, World War One, World War II destroyed this belief that we could ever Christianize the world, and that was, for the most part, abandoned. And, but the idea was that we have Christianized the world, and then Christ will come back, the resurrection of believers, unbelievers, the great white throne judgment, new heavens, new earth, into the eternal state. They believed that the thousand was a figurative sense. Okay, that's post-millennialism. The view that I've been teaching here is what's been called amillennialism, it's poorly named because amillennialism says there's no millennium. What we just simply believe is that right now, this is the, 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 the church age, Revelation 20, 1 through 6, is right now. And it all culminates here. Christ comes back. There's a resurrection of believers and unbelievers, a judgment, new heavens, new earth, and we go right into the eternal state. It is the simplest of all the beliefs of the millennium. Very straightforward. Now, the big issue is this, is this, this millennial period. If it's literal, okay, and I know there are many people in this church who hold that view, so I'm going to be very fair-handed to this, but if it's literal, then this introduces all manner of doctrines and teachings that are not explicitly found or taught clearly in the entirety of the Bible, including Isaiah 65, 66. When I was a former premillennialist. I held on to that chapter, but that chapter itself is very unclear what the prophet is getting at. What we have, if you take a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth uh, before the finality of all things, is it's kind of a, a quasi-intermediary state between the old heavens and earth and the new heavens and earth. We have this kind of in-between state, almost like a, a Protestant positive per paradise purgatory kind of thing, if you will. Not to mention that if you take this literally... You are ignoring the genre of the book of Revelation, which is, as I taught you, apocalyptic, which primarily means symbolic and figurative. So if you believe in a literal thousand-year reign, you are going to miss the broader teaching of Scripture, and you have to ignore the genre of the book of Revelation itself. If, however, the thousand years is figurative, then not only does it fit with the genre of the book, but then you allow all kinds of other texts of Scripture to interpret Revelation for you. Now, while the thousand years may be figurative, the truth that it signifies is certainly real. Again, a principle of interpretation in prophecy that, and that is just because something is figurative, it doesn't mean it's fictional. So the question is, what is the truth that's being signified by Revelation 20? And the truth can be summed up in one word, victory. The basis and result of God's foundational and final victory in Christ in all things. And John begins our chapter with where that victory was won. And where was that victory won? It was won at the cross. And so verses 1 through 3, John is going back to what happened at the cross. Now, notice what we are reading here in Revelation 20 is almost identical to what we learned in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9. Now, you don't have to go there, but I'm going to put it on the screen. I want you to look at that. Keep Revelation 20 in your hands there. Here's Revelation 12. Now, war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against 
Oh, that red's hard to see. The dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. Oh, man, I can't use red, this red. That, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. What we are reading here in Revelation 20, as in Revelation 12, refers to Satan being bound by Christ because of his victory on the cross. And we see that explicitly in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Now I heard a loud voice as soon as Satan and his angels were thrown down, a voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So just like the rest of the book, we have here in Revelation 20, just like in Revelation 12, a telescoping of all the redemptive history of what God is doing. Now, how do I come to this conclusion? Let me show you a couple scriptures. Number one, in Matthew 12, 29, this is what Jesus says. Forgive the big numbers there. i got to work on that. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Now what's going on here is that the, the Pharisees were watching Jesus cast demons out of people. And they're saying the reason he does this is this Jesus is in league with the devil. And the, the Lord said, the, Jesus says, no, that is not what's going on. The strong man has been bound. By the way, the exact same Greek phrase in both uh, Revelation and Matthew. The strong man's been bound. And I'm going in and I'm taking out mine. That's what he's saying there. Look at chapter Luke, chapter, excuse me, Luke 10, 18. The Lord says this, but Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Similar context here. Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the gospel of freedom. And they come back to Jesus saying, you're not going to believe this. We're preaching the gospel. And, and the devils themselves are running from us. They're fleeing from people. And Jesus says, well, that's what's going on because he's been bound. I saw him fall from heaven, and now they can't stand against the gospel, the Satan, nor even his devils or his angels. Here's another passage, John chapter 12 and verse 31. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Again, same Greek construction in John as we have in Revelation. Jesus is referring to his work on Calvary's cross that leads to the judgment on the enemy to him to be cast out. And so what we see in Revelation 12 and Revelation 20 makes sense of all these passages of Jesus saying the strong man's been bound, he's fallen from, hate, from, from heaven, and he's been cast out. He's been judged. Friends, the victory of Jesus at the cross simultaneously judges evil and provides righteousness. The reason we call it a victory is because Jesus was our substitute to pay for humanity's sin, and he was God's substitute for a new holy humanity. Thus, because of the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, both God's justice against sin and God's mercy toward the sinner are upheld in righteousness. It's a win-win. God wins because his glory is upheld. We win because our sin is dealt with and communion with God has been restored. He is bound. And he can no longer deceive the nations. And friends, this is where some people say, well, wait a minute, if Satan's bound, why do we live in the world that we do? He can't be bound. You know anything about history? Yes, he is. 
since the gospel hit humanity, it has not stopped in every, any nation. The gospel is everywhere. The darkness that once held sway over this world has been cast out. Human sacrifices, barbarianism, all those things have been pushed out as the gospel has transformed cultures and countries and continents. It cannot be stopped. Yes, there are difficulties. There are things like what's going on in the Middle East, in North Korea, in the communist countries. Yes, the gospel struggles. But there's no nation where there's not a gospel witness. Satan cannot stop the gospel from going out. That's why we're so encouraged for missions. Because he can no longer deceive the nations. Prior to the gospel, there was a light. This little country in Israel right there in the Middle East, and no one else knew. But now that the gospel has come, no nation has been untouched by it. Because the saints are going out. The work of Christ that was won here as Satan has been bound results in the witness of the church to the world. That it's evil, friends, our evil will be judged. But a new life is possible. A new humanity is available, and we do this work as sons and daughters of the king, which is why thrones are always a big deal in the book of Revelation, which leads to point number two. Verse four, the faithful witness of the church. Now, friends, the way this section breaks down, there's two chunks to it. Verses four through six certainly speak of the church age, while verses seven through 10, that cataclysmic battle between Satan and God again, I believe is, is an overlap, but as we learned last week, it's not much of an overlap because that battle goes away real quick. The Lord takes care of it. Now, why do I say verses 4 and 6 are referring to the church age? Well, let me give you some reasons. Again, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, this is what the Lord says to his disciples. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice, however, in Revelation 3.21, Jesus universalized this promise to include everyone. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. But friends, we also have to remember, interpret Revelation in the light of all the broader context of Scripture. These thrones that we're reading about here in Revelation 20, they are a callback, remember, to the vision of Daniel 7. In our early study of Revelation, we, were, we learned that Daniel 7 and that vision of God's throne, that throne room that Daniel had, was the foundation for the vision of Revelation 4 and 5 of God's throne room. So in Revelation 5, when John was seeing this vision of what was taking place in heaven, it was almost identical to the vision that Daniel had in Daniel chapter 7. So we have to ask, what's going on in Daniel chapter 7? And this is what we see. Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones, this is Daniel writing, right? Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Now, I, I recognize I'm throwing a lot of content at you. But what I'm hoping is you've been here faithfully and there's, there's, there's hangers that you're hanging this stuff on. All of this stuff should sound familiar at this point, right? The vision is very similar. Look what else Daniel says in chapter 7, verse 18. But the saints, most high, they'll receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. A few verses later, in verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed 
the kingdom. These thrones speak of our royalty and authority as sons and daughters of the king, as his ambassadors to a dark world. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, that we have become, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And I want you to see how Revelation 1 and Revelation 5 combines these images beautifully. Look at Revelation 1. And God made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look at Revelation 5, 10. Once you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Revelation is combining these images of being priests and a kingdom, and it fits beautifully with what we've just read here in Revelation chapter 20. Go back to Revelation 20. Friends, the thrones, let me unpack that for you, speaks of our exalted position as saints, ambassadors, sons and daughters of the king. Yet, there is also suffering and persecution in the text, right? Those that were beheaded those that were struggling. This speaks of the price that is paid by many of our brothers and sisters in Christ today. Friends, this is not a contradiction. This is the ever-present reality of God's church in this broken world. We are victorious and defeated, triumphant yet suffering, loved and hated, needed but rejected. There's no contradiction here. This is a picture of what it is to be the church in the last two millennia. Living in, we, we are a picture of the new humanity of God living in the vestiges of a crumbling and decaying world that hates God because it wants to be God. And so there are moments of victory and there are areas of victory and moments of defeat and areas of defeat. Triumphant yet suffering. This is what life of a Christian has been for two millennia all around the globe. Now, given what we're talking about here, that must then mean that the resurrection here, you see that in verse 5 right here, the resurrection being spoken of here must be referring to the fact that we have been brought from death to life in the new work of Jesus Christ. In other words, the resurrection is talking about is the gospel making us alive. And how do we say that? Because scripture has to interpret scripture. Look what Paul says in Romans 6. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Look what Colossians says. It's even more powerful in Colossians. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, resurrected together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Look a few verses later in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You see, what Paul's talking about is the vision that John is seeing, that we are now reigning with him. Friends, let's talk about something here. What verse 4 through 6 reminds us is that you and I right now, we have a job to do. Whether you are a firefighter or a parent or a business owner or a retail salesperson, you have a job. You are priests, and your job as priests is represent God to humanity. 
So whatever it is you're doing, whether it's in law enforcement or insurance sales or construction, you bring a God-word orientation, a biblical worldview to what it is you do in every context. You bring God's point of view into that. Yet as priests, not only do we represent God to humanity, we represent humanity to God by going before the Lord in prayer and supplication, asking the Lord to open blind eyes, enlighten darkened minds, soften hardened hearts. That's what Revelation 24 through 6 is saying. We are right now reigning with him as kingdoms, as sons and daughters of the king, as a nation of priests representing God to the world and the world to God, which is why Jesus was called the great high priest. He was the ultimate expression of that. Uh, um, Ephesians 5, 6, it says, notice, present tense, seated us with him in the heavenlies right now in some mysterious way. Friends, if you are a Christian, your life on earth is in some way modeled in a life you have with Christ in the heavenlies as you are a priest and an ambassador for this kingdom serving in this dual role. Man, that, that's heavy, man. Friends, you're not, you're not to be just simply getting by in life, waiting for some point at the end when it all kind of unwinds and then you get your reward. That's not what Revelation is saying. Right now, we have a task. If you have the eyes to see it and the ears to hear it, you are now currently extending the reign of God through your life. That's what Revelation is saying. We are extending his reign into this world, into this battle. The question we have to ask is, how are we doing with that? Friends, how are you doing with that? Are you pressing into your priestly role as a spouse, as a student, as a worker, as an employer, as an employee? Are you pre pressing in to your royal role as a citizen, as, as a voter, as a part of our society? Are you being a priest of a different kingdom? Friends, what this means is no life, no moment is mundane. But every moment has eternal significance. Or is your life just news, weather, sports? Nothing wrong with news, weather, or sports, right? I mean, we all enjoy that. But what do they have in common? They're just passing fads. I mean, who remembers the headlines from just six months ago, let alone six weeks ago, right? What are we doing with our lives now that will matter beyond our lives? Friends, if what you're giving yourself to won't matter in 50 or 60 years, should you really be giving your entire self to it right now? Because as we see, everything's winding up and it'll change suddenly. I think that's part of the message of verses 7 through 10. We see that. Um, and actually, we've seen this before, haven't we? Uh, many times in many different vantage points. You see the events here back in chapter 20, under verse 7, subheading might say, the defeat of Satan. We've seen this before. This is parallel with what we just saw last week, as a matter of fact, in Revelation 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Even further back in Revelation 16, we saw this. Who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Even as far back as Revelation 11, we got a glimpse of this. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. 
As well, we've seen glimpses of this battle at the end of some of those judgment cycle, uh, uh, judgment salvation cycles, as far back as chapter 6. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves, calling among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us who is, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And finally, Revelation 16, 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. Now, not everyone will agree with my interpretation. But honestly, honestly, how many last final battles on that great day can there actually be? You notice that we've been reading these terms over and over again because it is not this. It is this. That's what's going on. Revelation 20 is showing us the victory of Christ that makes every other victory possible. The victory of the church ultimately through this time period. And finally, the victory of God as he passes judgment over all. And that leads us to our last point here, the great white throne. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but I want you to see how Revelation works. We have seen this scene before throughout the book of Revelation. As far back as chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Revelation 11. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. We have seen this judgment over and over throughout the book of Revelation. But here's the final point I want you to get. Do you notice in this final section that there are books, plural, and then there was a book, singular. Again, we have to go back to Scripture. Well, what's that going on there? Because we've seen this before. We've seen it a lot in Daniel's prophecy that undergirds much of the book of Revelation. Going back to Daniel's vision in Daniel 7 and the common, common biblical teaching that God knows all. He remembers all and no deed will be forgotten by him. Do you notice how every one of us will be here? It made a, a very sweeping statement. Kings and peasants, great and small, slave and free, we're all here. And you notice in verse 12, the dead seem to refer to a particular group of people. Well, who are those people? Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. These are the people, by the way, who are judged by the books that were open, right? It says it right there. And the books were opened. They were judged by them. Friends, as we wrap this up, the Bible is very clear that all of us will give an account for our lives and that accounting will have an impact on our eternal verdict. Now, you don't have to write these down. Maybe you can take a picture of them. But those are just five verses that, that I could see clearly that talk about the fact that there will be an accounting. Every one of us. We will stand before God. And every single one of us in this room will give an account. I will stand there. I am reading my future as I am reading yours. I will stand there and every thought I've had, 
every action I've committed, every feeling I've experienced will be exposed. And it will either vindicate me or condemn me. But it gets worse or better, probably worse. Not only every thought, every action, every feeling I've had, but every thought, every action, every feeling I should have had and didn't will judge me. We will not make it past this judgment. I don't know what you think of yourself, but we will not make it when these books of life or these books are opened. When these books that record the deeds of our lives are opened up, I will be justly damned. But there's another book here, isn't there? The book of life. But notice, it's not books. It's not the plural. It's singular. There's one because only one person was able to live the way he should have in complete and perfect obedience and joy towards the Lord, towards God. Revelation 13, 8 tells us this book of life is the, book of the, it's the Lamb's book of life. It's about Jesus. It's his life. That was Jesus. And in that book of life, and here's the good news, in that book of life, hopefully it's not as tattered as this one, somewhere, maybe scribbled in the margins, or maybe there's a post-it note, will be my name. In that book of life, that is Jesus' life, I don't care where, I'll take anything, it'll be there. And, and of course, I'm using some sanctified imagination here, right? I, I think there's going to be a circle on Jesus' name, because that's his life. And there's going to be an arrow that points to my name there. And it's going to say, all this applies to him too. See, there's not going to be a book of my deeds or accomplishments, good or bad. Because when I became a Christian, I said, mm, Lord, this book of mine, no, can we, can we not use that one? Can, can we not use the book of my life? Can, can you just throw that one away? And just let Jesus' life stand in for mine. Can we do that? Get rid of my book and just have his life stand in for mine. Friends, that right there is God's answer to the question. Absolutely. You see, it turns out that Jesus' victory on the cross is my victory as well. But not just my victory. It is a victory for anybody who's willing to say, my life will not stand up to judgment. I need a substitute. Can he be my substitute? Friends, if you want Jesus' life to stand in for you, if you want his book opened instead of yours, then, then what you need to do is, at that great white throne judgment, if you don't want yours open, but you want Jesus' open on your behalf, you need to cast your book of life outside, just like Satan's cast out of, uh, Satan's cast out of heaven. You need to get rid of your life. And the cross is the way we do it. Because you recognize you cannot possibly stand under that judgment. You need a substitute. You need another life read on behalf of your life. You need to tap out. You cannot win this fight. And that's what the gospel is all about. Revelation ends, verse chapter 20 ends with some great imagery here. Death and Satan thrown into death itself. I love that. Verse 14. Then death 
and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, into the second death. Friends, it's, I love the completeness of this. John Murray the Puritan was right when he wrote the book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And all that goes with it, our selfishness, our haughtiness, our pride, our self-righteousness, our snotty attitudes, all of that stuff destroyed, thrown in the lake of fire. How amazing that is, which is why Paul can write in 1 Corinthians 15, and we end with this. Then comes to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter that tells us of the final and ultimate victory of, of God in Christ. And that we have a responsibility right now. This is not something we wait for to conclude at the end that we can kind of kick back for and get prepared when it shows up. But that right now you want us to extend your reign as ambassadors of this kingdom, as a priests to this God. Wake us from our stupor. Wake us from the, the grip that this fading world has, that we might live for what matters. Father, we know you can do it. You've brought us to life. We pray you continue to give us that new life in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.